And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast Live from beautiful and scorching Las Vegas, Nevada, where Summer League is rolling. I finally got here after two days of travel hell and flight cancellations, but I'm here, damn it. I missed Wembenyama. Kevin Pelton, you did not miss Victor Wembenyama or Scoot Henderson or all the good stuff. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, and uh, glad you made it through the flight delays. I had a similar experience coming back from the East Coast a few weeks ago, and it was uh, not not so fun. You know, once you travel with a child, um, delays and cancellations when you're traveling by yourself are just a piece of cake, really. Like, what, like what delays with a little baby? That's that's bad. That sucks. The delays by yourself. Yeah, just get my laptop out and do work. Um, I did watch Wembenyama's second game from the uh, lounge of the TWA hotel at JFK airport since my flight got canceled. Um, and I think I, I, I was, I was sipping a margarita and watching Wembenyama. And I think I made like squealing noises that might've alarmed some of the other patrons nearby. Like, what is this guy doing? Um, obviously he had a shaky first game and the stupid, can we do all, we don't need to do the thing where like four people say dumb things after one summer league game. And then there's like a hundred columns about these four people who said dumb things. You can just ignore the four people and not write the hundred columns and just move on with life. And he had a great second game. So you watched him up close. What, what stood out to you seeing him up close in an NBA setting? Yeah, it was interesting. What you were doing, I feel like, was my reaction a lot during the two games he played against G League Ignite, watching those on TV back in October. And, you know, there's not, and I, and I certainly had it watching him at times during the French season as well, because, you know, there, he just does things that you're not supposed to be able to do at that size. And, it, you know, obviously the fatigue element was pretty significant for him playing these games after this period of time where, you know, I think he later lamented like less than half of his schedule has been basketball since the draft because of the fact that so much has been taken up by, you know, marketing appearances, things like that. Maybe just travel in general because of the fact that, you know, he's been going back and forth from France. And the other element was, I, I do think, and, and this maybe surprised me, that there maybe was some degree of nerves you know, playing in front of a large American audience for the first time, uh, you know, the, the G League Ignite show exhibitions back in October, that was all scouts, basically. It wasn't like a lot of fans. That was what generated the excitement and hype among fans. And it felt like even the start of the second game was a little bit like that. He had two points in the first 12 minutes, um, missed a couple of free throws the first time he got to the line, which was a bit of an issue in general on Sunday. But then he blocks a shot gets out in transition for a dunk and everything starts going from there. And what I really think we saw in the fourth quarter that I hadn't maybe gotten a chance to appreciate in the limited French league uh, action I saw from Wembanyama is the competitive juices getting flowing when they forced a 24 second shot clock violation in large part, thanks to his defense late in that game, hits a three to pull them within one. Uh, ultimately they end up losing that game, but still we saw like he was serious about winning in a game that no one else really cares who won or lost. Yeah, that stood out. Um, a, a subset of that was his inviting contact on rolls to the rim, on, you know, when he's the screener and dribble handoffs, like just going through guys. And he gets knocked backwards because he's skinny, but he's like, if you're going to knock me backwards, that's fine. I get to go to the line a couple times. You mentioned the block shots, and I know it's not sexy. Everyone wants to talk about the three point shooting and the dribbling and all the guard skills that he has. And we're going to see, like, we saw a, a lot of that, and we can talk about that. 
I've been saying since the first time I saw this dude play, the defense is what is going to stand out immediately. He's going to come into the league as a very good defensive player. And just, I know like he's going to get bodied now and then on the glass. Like, like he's got to really be diligent boxing out because people are going to try to shoulder check him, you know, run from behind him, shove him out of the way. On the other hand, he's so goddamn tall. He had that floater that he missed on the left baseline and he ran all the way under the rim and out jumped everybody and got it back for an and one. It was like, Oh my God. Um, but I think his footwork is already pretty good, like defending pick and rolls in, in different ways. We saw the Spurs use him on power forwards instead of center, so he was defending the perimeter. And although that maybe isn't the you know, ideal shot-blocking role for him, he covers so much space in the passing lanes out there that it's like, what, what am I supposed to do here? There are just these arms everywhere all the time, and he still impacts the game that way, closing out. I think he's just going to walk in the door as – I, I, I'm not going to say top whatever defensive player, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if the first month of the season, everyone is like, oh, offensively, he's shooting 41%, and it's like not going as great as we thought, but oh my God, he's leading the league <laughs> in blocks or something like that. What stood out to you about his defense? No, I think that's absolutely right, and how I felt about him kind of the entire way, like especially early on, and you know, it sounds like the Spurs were encouraging this, particularly in Summer League. He's going to be exploring the studio space on offense. What can I do? What what am I capable of here? I mean, he shot a one-legged floater three to try to get within one in the late stages of this game. No one, most guys six foot five don't attempt that, let alone guys who are seven foot five. And that, I think, to your point, that's what gives him the ceiling, the ceiling of being perhaps unlike any player we've ever seen, which is not a reasonable expectation for him, particularly early in his career. But the floor is set by the defense. That's what determines that. And that's why he is, even you know, if he's not going to be great offensively right away, still going to be a player who makes a difference in terms of winning and losing with the defensive element. Uh, you mentioned the, having him almost exclusively on power forwards element, and I think that's worth discussing for several reasons. Defensively, there were times it felt like he was just kind of there on an island and was maybe not able to have the impact. Like if I were game planning against Wemby at this point, like that would be my plan is to basically, you know, hope, hope he's on my best shooter and sacrifice that shooter in the sake of everybody else is playing four on four. That's and Wemby what, isn't involved. To, to, to draw the Spurs connection, like for a bit, that's what people did with Kawhi Leonard when they mm -hmm. were so terrified of him, they would try to arrange their offense. So whoever he's guarding is just not involved at all. But that, sometimes meant sacrificing like your best player, but that's how scared people were of him. This is a totally different thing. So you're saying you would aim for that. Like you go over here and just stay over here, please. Because Kawhi is a good as a help defender, very good as a help defender, but also a lot of his, you know, defensive value is his one-on-one -on -one defense. Whereas in Wemby, it's much more about the help defense than it is, you know, his on-ball defense necessarily. But yeah, like I think of the Packers used to always do this against the Seahawks in the Richard Sherman era that they would, Aaron Rodgers would not look his direction whatsoever. He was just like, you're going to be out there covering one-on-one -on -one, and I'm going to be going to the other side of the field, which I, I don't know that that strategy necessarily worked very well, at least uh, when they were playing those games in Seattle, but that that was the approach they took. I, I think if you're looking for how he can impact games in that role, Robert Williams in Boston is probably the ideal comparison in terms of the much ballyhooed defensive shift midway through Ime Yudoka's one season as coach where he starts defending power forwards, but he's helping aggressively off of them so that he's there at the rim while Al Horford is the one defending centers and at the point of attack and pick and roll. 
And then I think this also matters on offense too, because one of the things you saw a lot, particularly on Sunday, is you know most teams' rule is going to be we're going to switch one four pick and rolls. We might not switch with our center, but we are sw- going to switch with our power forward. And all of a sudden, you've got a guy who's like six two defending Wimanyama in the post. And even if he doesn't necessarily score out of that, it's going to create some problems. And the one thing that did stand out in a positive way on Friday from his offense was his passing ability, especially over the top. Yeah, I you mentioned the switching on defense that he faced. And I was really happy to see, first of all, when those switches happened, and no, this is summer league, right? So you don't know how much of this is going to carry over. When those switches happened, the defense reacted like, oh, this is a problem. Like they shaded help toward him right away. They did not disrespect him and say, you know what? We don't think you're physical enough. You're going to settle for a 14-foot fadeaway over our 6'3 guard. They were like, this is a problem. We're scared. And he makes the right read out of we're scared defenses. The other thing I liked was, although he could just fade away over any of these guys at any time he wanted, there were Which he did at one point in the fourth quarter on Sunday and just yeah. had a very smooth-looking turnaround jumper. But there were a couple of – like there's a difference between fading away for a 16-footer and kind of doing what Jokic does, which is like pivot, 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 and just like get to a comfortable little 8-foot hook shot or floater. And he had a couple of those where I like, I like that you kept – at least kept the space that you had earned. You didn't surrender any space. So you, you got close to the rim and made it still an urgent situation. There was another play – this is the feel stuff – there was another play where he screened, he rolled. I think there was a switch. They couldn't get him the ball. So he's now down on the block and just, he's like, all right, that's it. That didn't work. Comes out, sets another screen, pops for a three. And the defense is like, whoa, he was just over here. He's over. And it was an open three on the left wing and he made it. And the passing, the versatility, like the guy is, it, it's it, like the offense might not be as efficient as people hope right off the bat, but I, I, I don't, I have not seen one thing. I just haven't seen anything to counter the hype. I mean, the guy looks like a complete alien and is incredible uh, at so many things. And defensively, the guy he reminds me most of is Giannis, uh, honestly. Like, the combination of speed and length and the ability to just be, like, everywhere all the time. Just a bigger, probably not quite as quick, but pretty damn quick version of that kind of player. Like, he's just everywhere. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that comparison. I mean, the one thing that Giannis doesn't really do that Wemanyama is going to do, we saw it multiple times this weekend, is block threes. And that's an element that Robert Williams maybe is, again, the best comparison. That's a guy who blocks a lot of threes. Mark Williams uh, in Charlotte does it a fair amount. And then Matisse Thibel among the shorter Chris Boucher. Yes. Yes. Uh, To go back to your point about on the block against the switching, you mentioned the floater that he chased down the rebound and and scored uh, a three-point play. That was against the switch. To me, the play against the switch that stood out was he was on the left block, double team comes, he pivots middle, nothing there, you know, there's no, doesn't find anybody open. And then decides to you know pivot, come back to the the baseline side, and oh, even though there's a double team, because of the fact that I'm seven foot five, I still have an angle for this soft little like twelve foot banker off of glass. Whew, the Spurs, man! I can't believe the Spurs. How is this like Tim Duncan, David Robinson, Victor Wembanyama? Sure, Spurs. Could we just talk about the Spurs' actual basketball team for five minutes? I assume their starting five will be Trey Jones. Devin Vassell, who I love, as and he's going to be in the perfect role now. Jeremy Sohan, who I also adore. Keldon Johnson, who is not quite 
as much my cup of tea as I think he is for other people, but he's fine. And Wembanyama at the five. I'm assuming they're just going to just go whole hog with that lineup, start that's, right off the bat. No? Yeah, that's interesting because I, I mean, they resigned, they're, they're guaranteed, I should say, Zach Collins. So they've got that option if they want to go Collins at five. Can we Wemby not? Four, can we but, just have fun? Can we just have a little fun, Pop? I know he pops. Pop, how about Pop signing the five year, $80 million extension? That was a pretty uh, shocking bit of news when that came through when we were all sitting so on the So who on comes off row. the bench? Sohan? Yeah, I. That's the tough part, is because Sohan is pretty clearly part of the core. He was the one of their first round picks last year who was not asked to play summer league again this year. As they've got, you know, Blake Wesley trying to play point guard out here, and Malachi Branham who put up a lot of points last season when he got a chance to play extended minutes is still they bad. Are, they are very high on Malachi Branham. If you talk to Spurs people, they're like, I don't think people realize. Like, we think this dude's going to be good. He'll be a core guy off the bench for them, along with I think Bullock. Um, if, if he doesn't get rerouted somewhere, McDermott is still there. Then they have a boatload of guys, and they have Zach Collins penciled Devontae into the Graham. backup five. Devontae Graham's got to, I guess, has got to find a minute somewhere. Uh, I thought Zach Collins had a nice bounce back season for them last night, and I don't mind the idea of starting him at the five just to save Wembanyama the pounding of playing the five. Um, it's just not as fun, and I just want them to be fun and decent. Like that's a decent starting five. And the thing about Sohan is. He showed actually he showed a little bit more one-on-one scoring chops like against mismatches now and then like using his size to score over people in the post and working off the dribble from the triple threat position like he he had a little bit more of that than I anticipated but I like I I just think he's got that he's a guy you want on the floor a lot with your best players because he's got that sort of jack of all trades unselfish complimentary screening handoff extra pass defend everybody like he's he he looks to me like the glue guy that you want next to your best best players a lot. So I just kind of like the idea of, I mean, I are they who's the worst team in the West next year? Like the West is just well, loaded. Well, I, think, the, I, I mean, depends how many months it takes for Damian Lillard to get traded, right? Is is that the answer? Yeah, Portland will be the first the worst team in the West if if and when they trade Lillard. I guess although they're um, not they're not going to bottom out. Certainly, they you know Jeremy Grant obviously is going to be there. But they'll bottom out by default, right? Like if they're fifteenth, it doesn't matter what their record is; they're still fifteenth. Like they're still going to be high in the lottery odds. Like I think, I, I I haven't started doing win. No one has really started doing win projections yet. It's too early. There are too many variables. But like I I think that Spurs lineup that I just trotted out there, they're like a good guard away from being competitive every single game. Like I don't know if that translates to thirty five wins or something, but like they're not going to be a walkover, and yet they might also get one more high pick and one more, two more bites at the cap space apple. Like they are, I mean, hot take. They're set up very well for the next 10 years. If Wembenyama stays healthy, any other Wembenyama uh, takes uh, to stay on the Spurs for a second. I mean, a couple of things. Number one, that's what made the Reggie Bullock. They're part of it trade. They're part of it. So interesting is like, if you think which team has the best outlook for 2030 right now, the Spurs have got to be it, right? You're, these, you're alluding yeah. to the fact that they acquired an unprotected pick swap from the Dallas Mavericks in 2030 on top of their, I believe, top one protected pick swap that they have from Boston in 2028. Now, Boston mm-hmm. is pretty well set up to be good for a long time. but And they've got extra picks from Atlanta, other teams. Like, they are – they are. I mean, we don't know what, what they'll do. They've de- generally been a build from inside, you know, slow build kind of team. But they're they're really well set up. But I like that they play slow played it a little bit off this offseason. You know, they wasn't. I mean, you know, even though the mentioned 
Lillard possible connection because of his re- respect for the organization. It, that doesn't seem likely to happen. And I think they're going to see what they have for a year, see what pieces that they need to build around it. And then summer of 24 is when you probably start to press the gas pedal a little more on this this team in ter- terms of trying to win now. Uh, to your starting lineup point, I mean, the thing is, all five of those guys are probably not going to play together on a regular basis because you know one of them will be out of the lineup and maybe that's what opens the opportunity for Collins to start and you keep Wemby at the f- five. I would say the last thing on Wemby specifically, the the one thing that was like marginally concerning to me this weekend was the number of times he was on the ground. I think that's probably more a function of you know fatigue and that element of, of it than necessarily the NBA players, you know, that he's playing against because we did not see that a lot from him watching him in France or even in those ignite uh, exhibitions. Yeah. He had a couple of jump shots where guys ran into his landing space and he fell over. That we I, saw I wonder, a lot. I, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if that's just a function of big guys closing out, bigger guys closing out are not, are not quite as um, adept at chopping their feet and, and stuff like that. So like that, yeah, it is. Those landing spot things, whether they're illegal, not illegal, clean plays, like it's always those are always the ankle. You know that's what worries you about about those plays. All right, let's switch gears because freaking Spurs, man. Well, usually they're on the other end of those plays. No, I guess on those plays, yeah. Usually they win the lottery in the exact year you want to win the lottery. Unbelievable. <laughs> R.C. Buford in his blue chair. Unbelievable. Look it up for people who don't know. Pop. Pop just Pop just grinning in the stands. Five years, eighty million. I get to coach this kid. Schedules got get get my check secretary to schedule all the dinners and the wine wine sessions for post game on the road trip. Unbelievable. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream. Your team. Call 1 800 Direct TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. In season tournament format was announced this week. Uh, the semifinals and the finals will be here in beautiful Las Vegas in December. The NBA is dividing the 30 teams into six groups of five. Three groups in the East, three groups in the West. All the teams in the group will play head-to-head games against each other, so four games apiece. Those will all be on set days in November. So that I think that was big because – is that right? 
I, I didn't know that. I Look, I admit that the in-season tournament has not been at the top of my my focus this week in Vegas. That's how I read the story. Now, I'm going to have Evan watch on the podcast, the NBA um, guy who was the architect of this later this week. And, and I think that's important because the number one obstacle with the group play structure and having the group play games also be regular season games was having fans understand and remember that this game amid an avalanche of games is actually important for another reason. And I think putting as many of those games on the same night so you turn it into like, hey, this is a group play night. This is a group play night. These are all group play games makes it pretty easy to understand. And then the six group winners and then two wild card teams, the highest finishers, advance to the quarterfinals, semifinals, etc. Players on the winning team get $500,000. Players on the losing team get $200,000. And the winners get to hoist the first annual NBA Cup, which gets you nothing but the money, but is a cup. It's a cup. I I, I don't know that I, I missed a press conference. I don't know if the cup has been produced, if it's a chalice, if it's a goblet. There was a cup um, what, there last night. I, I assumed that it was the cup. And, and this is a rule of thumb on my Seattle sports podcast I do with my brother, the Fabulous Pelton cast. It's only a cup if you can drink out of it, which it looked like you could. What is? Are there any cups, sports cups you can't drink out of? World Cup you can. There Stanley are, yeah. Cup you can. What, what cup mean, can I not? That's the key appeal of the Stanley Cup. I, I don't know if I can name the cup that you can, can't drink out of off the top of my head, but I know they exist. They're okay. So there, so I, I initially, like years ago, when this idea was bandied about, was skeptical of it. I was like, nobody will care about this. It's just going to blend in. It's not going to like make teams approach things with more urgency. People pitched all these ideas like maybe the winning team should be guaranteed a playoff spot. I thought that was crazy. Maybe the winning team should get an extra first-round pick. I thought that was a little crazy and also maybe counter to the interests of the players on the winning team who would have an extra guy coming in to compete for minutes. And so they settled on money. And the more I've sat with it and thought about it, I just I don't really get why everyone hates this idea so much or people seem to hate it. I think it's like it's it's a total no harm, no foul thing to me. And I actually think provided I'm right and I'll get more clarity later this week that the group play games are all kind of clustered together. So there's a little bit of like a, everyone realizes this is a group play night. I think it's going to be kind of fun. I, I don't necessarily think like Fans are going to be in the finals, like stressed and oh my god, it's crunch time in the NBA Cup. The pressure's on, blah blah blah. Like, but I think it'll be kind of fun. And to me, if there's an upside that is just, hey, it's kind of like adds ten percent more fun to the NBA regular season, which takes forever and has a million games. I don't see any harm to this. The only harm is one, two teams have to play an eighty-third game. And so, okay, so let them load manage, you know, a couple extra games and don't penalize them or anything. I think it's totally fine. And I actually kind of think it's going to be fun. I think so, too. I mean, so I have seen a version of this done in the WNBA the last few years here where they've added the Commissioner's Cup in the same sense that uh, the regular season games also count towards those standings. And to your point about separating those dates out on the schedule, the WNBA has not done that. It just is whenever your first game home and away against teams in your conference happens to be, which is especially kind of unusual in the WNBA because conferences have gone away in terms of the actual playoffs. This is the only time really that conferences matter at all. Even the all-star game, they do not have conferences. You just select the best players overall. So 
it, it is difficult to remember necessarily whether this is a commissioner's cup game or not. So I think that would be a positive in terms of those regular season games. I mean, I think my biggest concern was, you know, if you played, say, a 32 team tournament and they were to invite, you know, a couple of international teams to fill that out before uh, we get to expansion, which cannot possibly come soon enough for me in Seattle. You know, I think in that case, you would run the risk of everyone compares this to you know, the FA Cup in England or, you know, the, the uh, you know, national cups in various other soccer or basketball leagues throughout Europe. And I think the better comparison is it's more like kind of the second tier leagues cup types of competitions where teams aren't necessarily going to take this very seriously in the early rounds. And it's only kind of when you get close to the finish line that suddenly it's going to get serious. And I think that's why doing it the way that they've done, where it is more than just the, the WNBA's Commissioner's Cup isn't really a tournament. They only add one extra game between the top finishers in each conference as a championship. So we have a tournament format where we're going to have the, the eight teams reduced down to one, but you're close enough that you're only three games away. You'd have to play two of those games anyway. I, I think that is going to be worth teams taking seriously once they get to that point, especially you know, our, our colleague Dave McMenamin pointed this out on on Twitter on Saturday uh, after the details were announced. You know, yes, the five hundred thousand dollars is not going to make very much difference to your star player, but to the player on the end of the bench on the rookie minimum to I don't know if the two way players are eligible, but certainly to them, like that's a big deal to those players. And if you can help them accomplish that, I think that's going to be something worth doing. Yeah, everyone's all chump change for NBA players, chump change for NBA players. If you make $2 million, $4 million, $5 million, first of all, to be clear, you're incredibly rich and fortunate, and an extra $500,000 is not like, uh, maybe it is life-changing, I don't know, but you're already doing great in life. But if, if, any, if any of us were like, hey, if you win this thing, you get 25% of your salary instantaneously, or an eighth of your salary or a tenth of your salary, like that is a non-trivial thing for a lot of players. Now for the stars, it's not that big of a deal. And to your point, like, I don't think, so here's what Tim Bontemps story on the, the play. And to be clear says, um, the group play portion of the tournament will consist of four games, one against each of the other four members across each group. And the groups are, to be clear, divided by quality of teams from the previous season. They had pots of teams so that they're you're all playing within your conference, but there's like elite teams, okay teams, and a bad team from the year before. Um, and that will take and those games will take place on seven dates throughout November. This year, those dates will be November 3rd, 10th, 14th, 17th, 21, 24, 28, four Fridays three Tuesdays. I'm guessing there will be like other games that are not maybe group play games on those days, but I think they're trying to cluster all the group play games the way I read it on those seven days, which I think is a really smart idea. To your point, I don't think like, oh, it's group play game number two between the Celtics and the Magic. I don't think like Jalen Brown's playing 47 minutes in that game and like someone's coming back early from an injury and everyone's going to go crazy. I, and that's fine. Like, that doesn't have to be part of the deal for it to work. I do think people will sense, like, there's kind of a fun thing at stake here. And there, it's it's easy to track the standings. It's four games. Like, and you can kind of bulletin board where they are. I think it's going to be a little bit more user-friendly and less confusing than it seemed at first. And I'm pro-fun. It's going to be fun. Like, the semifinals and the finals in Vegas will be fun. And... The NBA Cup, cool, let's try it. What's no, no harm, no foul. I will say this, though, Kevin Pelton, 
and I'm going to sound like old man yells at cloud. Evan Wash in this article, and I'm going to grill, I'm going to grill him, I'm going to put the screws to him <laughs> on this, mentioned the name NBA Cup and how maybe down the line sponsors could come in and there could be a renaming. I don't want this to be the Kia Presents the Sprite Taco Bell Poulian Weed Eater Cup. Keep it to NBA Cup or name it after an NBA figure like he named all the awards after the NBA figures. Maybe it ends up being the David Stern Cup. No spon- sponsors. The companies have taken over everything. Let's like let this thing over here be a fun little thing that has no sponsor. Commissioner's Cup is a fine a fine uh, name for the WNBA version of this. No, no Poulian Weed Eater Independence Bowl Cup. That's my I- only... Yeah, I kind of assumed it was going to be named the, the David Stern Cup, that that would be from the get-go what they would call it, uh, you know, especially, did, did Stern have any of the awards named after him, the trophies named after him last oh, year? Man, they, I, named, they named so many things, I lost track of who got one and who didn't get one. I, I did a whole podcast about this, and like, hot take, I think Tim Duncan didn't get one, and I was upset about it, and now I just don't even remember who got what. I was trying, <laughs> I was at a dinner last night trying to remember who I voted second team all-rookie. I was with an agent, and we were talking about one of his clients, and I was like, I don't know. I don't even remember. I have a fun one for you. I'm going to spring this on you. Ready? Okay. In-season in tournament related, but not really. I, I was out to dinner with a with a, a buddy of mine last night who works, in the, uh, works for a team, and I had forgotten that I think him and another one of our mutual NBA connections had come up with this idea for a fake tournament that we thought would be a very fun event to see. A three-on-three tournament involving all 30 teams where the three players on your team have to be the number one principal owner of the team, the number one basketball decision maker of the team and the head coach. And back in the day, it was like, we just like, we just thought it would be funny if those are the three players on your team, like who would win, who would be the worst team, who's the worst possible player that you could have. And back in the day, it was like, well, it's Charlotte. Like as long as Charlotte has Jordan, it's over for them. Well, Jordan's 60 now, I think. Jordan, Mitch Kupchak, Steve Clifford feels like a vulnerable team. Uh, it, off the top of your head, do you like this idea? Should we do it? And who is a strong team? Of course I like this idea. Uh, the team that comes to mind, and this is strange to me because <laughs> I legitimately had a dream the other night that I was a former NBA player. I'd ground out like a modest career given my lack of lack of physical tools. And I, I was an assistant coach now. And I was explaining to the head coach of my team why I had not, not had as successful a career as him because I was pointing out, look at how long your arms are relative to mine. Look at how big your hands are relative to mine. And that head coach was Jason Kidd. And I think the Mavericks with Kidd, Nico Harrison, like I don't know if Mark Cuban's still playing to the same degree that the, he was. The owner is a wild career. card. Like we we were having conversations last night. Like if I just triple teamed Willie Green, can Gail Benson make a wide open layup? Like if she's just under the rim, can so. she catch the ball yeah. and make enough wide open layups to beat me? Um, I thought I thought a sneaky. I don't know a, a lot about Joe Sy's game, but the Joe Sy Sean Marks. Jacques Vaughn combination seems like a strong one to me. Um, Wick Rousebeck, I think at least is very competitive and feisty. Him and Brad Stevens and Joe Missoula, that's a strong that's a strong team. Those are those are might be my two betting favorites. Unless Michael is still good enough and still insane competitive enough that he would just be well, like, No, I'm single handedly winning this for us. And still the principal owner is he has a reached agreement to sell the team. I think that's the other the other wild card here. 
Uh, your producer Dan points out Matt Ishbia was not that far removed from playing as a walk-on in college. I, I think you're right to hone in on owner is the biggest variable. Golden State, especially if like strong team. Lakeup still plays, but especially if Kirk Lake have got to play. I've played with Kirk, uh, and you've got Steve Kerr and now Mike Dunleavy Jr. in that GM spot. Not that Bob Myers was any slouch. I've I've also played with him. Uh, but that 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 team also comes to mind for me. I think it has to be Joe Lacob. I think we have to just have no exceptions. It has yeah. to be the number one guy listed as the go- the first governor of the team. I don't know if Steve can move around well enough anymore after all the back but problems. But does, but does his, he need to? Yeah, his ability just... as a stand up shooter is 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 uh, speaks for itself. I just thought this would be a fun idea. Um, those those would be. There are some teams that are are clearly going to be weaker. Than others, we had a whole we had a whole discussion about would Vivek Ranadive derail Sacramento's chemistry because he wants to be the guy? Like, is he because he wants to take all the shots because he thinks oh. he's in better shape than Mike Brown and and Monty McNair? This is the this is, is what you do in Las Vegas. Vivek is trying to have them play three on two. Is the the joke here, right? Oh yeah, the four on five defense. Um, all right, that's the end of my Zach Lowe Cup discussion. I think it would be a fun idea and do monster TV ratings. And uh, yeah, we you had know, a lot. If it's truly going to be the Zach Low Cup, don't you have to make the fourth player, make it four and four, or maybe four players on a three on three team and the fourth player is the mascot? Do they you have to play in their this. costume though? Oh yeah, of course. Well, then I think the Celtics become a huge favorite because <laughs> Lucky the Leprechaun is just a guy. Like he's a guy wearing normal clothes. He's like not in a costume. Like you see his face. He doesn't have bulky clothes. He's just like wearing a vest with shamrocks on it and a silly hat. So he has big mobility advantages. I'm on record as I don't even think Lucky should count as a mascot. I think they're half-assing it with Lucky. I, I just don't like Lucky. I'm sorry, Lucky. I'm sure you are a nice person. I don't like Lucky. I don't think he's a mascot. Because you got some, like, I don't know what Benny the Bull can do like in that costume, if he can even grip the ball. Set some mean-ass picks, though, Benny the Bull. Ram you with his horns. This is out of hand. I think this would be a fun idea. We had a whole discussion. Like, can Jody Allen play? Like, Jody Allen, Chauncey Billups, Joe Cronin used to play in college. I think he's pretty tall. Like, but Jody Allen, I, can I throw her the ball? I don't know. It's like, can she guard anybody? I, can I hide her on defense? This is anyway. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. I asked you to pick one team that you thought uh, their offseason had been under-discussed or 
you found yourself out of outside of conventional wisdom a little bit on analyzing their offseason. Please pick that team. So I went with the Cleveland Cavaliers because I think this is an important offseason for them. Uh, you know, it, this is their this was their big opportunity to go out and add to this roster after putting it together with the Donovan Mitchell trade so late in the game last offseason and not really being able to do anything substantial with the trade deadline. They had the ability, they created the ability with the sign and trade involving Max Struess to basically spend almost all the way up to the luxury tax line. They'll be near that the next couple of seasons. And then you get potentially extensions for Donovan Mitchell and Evan Mobley. And, you know, I don't want to say that that's your last opportunity to do something, especially in a league where I think teams change their fortunes now more via trade than they do via free agency. But obviously they're out the draft picks from the Mitchell trade, so they're not going to be able to take a big swing. It's just kind of reshuffling the pieces via trade. And they they obviously targeted their need of shooting. They've upgraded dramatically there when you look at adding, adding Struess George Niang and Ty Jerome. It was interesting talking to people in Vegas this week that there was some question about, I think, the value that they got on those deals. Struess uh, considerably more than the the mid level on that contract. Uh, Niang three years, twenty six million, and then Levert two years, thirty two million. Whether some of those were a little bit you know, pain to to try to address that specific need, and because of the fact that they had that ability to do so this year. I don't mind any of them, and I don't really, I don't get the pushback. Like, Struess was getting the mid-level, which is right. 12 or 13, whatever it is, so you're giving him a couple more million dollars a year than that, which adds up to like four to eight to ten over the course of the deal. I, I think Struess is a good player. Uh, he is not going to, they, they need this, they need this theoretical 3 and D stopper guy who doesn't exist to them. Like, it's hard to get those guys. They need Isaac Okoro but can shoot. And Max Struess can't guard like Isaac Okoro, and Isaac Okoro can't shoot like Max Struess. And so they're just going to have to finagle it one way or the other. Struess is at least competitive on defense. He's tough. He's strong. We've he seen him at the highest levels. Yeah, he understands game plans. He executes them. Like, he's not a sieve defensively. He's fine, and he can really, really shoot. I know he slumped in the playoffs last year. I think he's a good shooter. He might not be a great shooter. Might not be like a better shooter than Duncan Robinson, but he's a good, solid shooter. And at that money, I'm totally fine with that deal. Like I don't really understand the the pushback on it. Niang is, you know, eight million a year. Let's put I mean, are people you, you said you were surprised at how many hot takes there were on Isaiah Stewart's four year sixty four million dollar extension with the Pistons, which kind of came out of nowhere. Like, why did this happen today? It's the same deal that Struess got mm-hmm. and at, at like at least I'm pretty confident Struess can start on a playoff team with the right surrounding talent. I like Isaiah Stewart. I'm a big beef stew fan. Um, and I don't really mind that contract either. Cause I think that's what you're going to end up paying third big men now in the NBA. And I'm not, maybe he's not going to be quite that, but I mean, it's the same deal. Are people mad about the Isaiah Stewart one too? I was traveling all day and did not see much of their pushback. I mean, Matt is probably too strong and people is an exaggeration for the number of number of people I managed to talk to about this deal, you know, in the couple of hours after it broke last night. Uh, so I think the points in the in favor of the Stewart contract relative to the Struess one at basically the same value. Number one, that he's age 22. He's still super young. I put this in my reaction piece. He's younger than four guys that got drafted in the first round on on. Again, this is what I'm going to be saying. I got like two more years before I have to stop saying this about Patrick Williams and my never-ending quest <laughs> to never ever give up on Patrick Williams. So we're down. So we still got four guys that he's younger than every. I'm running out of guys though in the draft. 
Yeah. Uh, number two, that his is starting a year later, so it's going right. to take more advantage of the 10% cap increases we're likely to see when the new TV deal kicks in. Uh, but you, to your point, yeah, Struess, like they weren't going to get a better 3 and D guy than Max Struess this offseason. There was, there was no chance of getting a better small forward to fill that need. You know, I, I think you do worry, are you going to need to play Okoro against some of the bigger wings because of the fact that Struess just isn't quite big enough to guard them? Because in Miami, he wasn't tasked necessarily with uh, guarding the opponent's best perimeter player. Jimmy Butler was doing that. I honestly think that in time a portion of those assignments are going to go to Evan Mobley when Jared Allen is on the floor. And so when Jared Allen is back there to protect the rim, things change if Jared Allen's resting and it's like the Niang Mobley front court and you need him back protecting the rim. I think Evan Mobley will be ready for that in doses. And you put Max Struess over on, you know, whoever Max Struess can manage to guard or hide on or what Al Horford even, or a guy like that to use the Boston example of Brown and Tatum. Um, you know, we'll see how often they do that. Yeah, it's not it's not ideal. I think Niang at that money is fine. Niang's a really good shooter who moves his feet a little better on defense than I think he's given credit for and can play with either, probably not both, but either. Yeah, I mean, we'll see it at times. They'll go super big just to try it, but either Mobley or Allen. The concern is what it means for friend of the pod, Dean Wade. Yeah, Dean Wade. Oh, that was a resigned to somber Dean Wade. Oh no, I yeah, don't I like can't that. even bring my I can't even bring myself to do the jingle because it's been a rough six months in Dean Wade land. I still have faith in you, Dean Wade. I still have faith. I can't do the jingle. I can't do it. Don't have it in me. And the Levert deal, two years, thirty-two million. It reminds me of the D'Angelo Russell contract, which is like clearly this is okay. Let's just bring this guy back. It's manageable money. He does. I know everyone's like he's a bad fit with Mitchell and Garland. Too many ball handlers. At times, that's true. At other times, like he, the only playoff game they won against the Knicks was because of Karis LeVert's ability to handle the ball and set screens and work as a sort of middle playmaker in that sense. Like It's not bad to have a lot of guys who can do stuff with the ball. His shooting hasn't gotten to the place you hoped it would be if you're Cleveland. It's a totally tradable contract if he has a decent year and somebody needs an extra ball. And like, I... I like all the deals for Cleveland. I had them as a clear one of the winners of the offseason. Um, you see maybe a little just again to your point, like I think I think it's more more good than bad for sure. I, I do think the other interesting element about Cleveland from a big picture perspective, like even up to the first round series against the Knicks. Like everything was gravy last year. This is an organization that hadn't accomplished anything without LeBron James, as Brian Windhorst has mentioned repeatedly, you know, since the Halcyon days of the 90s, Mark Price, Larry Nance, uh, Brad Doherty teams. And now Larry Nance's younger son is playing for the Cavs in summer league. Pete Nance uh, is out there. So that's, that's, it's been a long period of time is what I'm trying to say here. And this year, there are going to be real expectations, and if they don't win a playoff series, playoff round, I think it would be considered a little bit of a disappointment in Cleveland. Yeah, I, I would agree, and especially kind of the the East is in a weird state of flux right now, and they're one of the teams that's going to enjoy a great deal of continuity, and I think probably benefit from that, benefit from the experience they got in the playoffs, and and the bad of it, like like Evan Mobley wasn't good enough, Jared Allen was like way not good enough, and. You hope that, you know, Evan Mobley, especially given that they're young, particularly Mobley, that they kind of grow from that. My pick was Milwaukee, um, who has not hardly been talked about at all. Um, 
largely because I think they stood pat. They brought back Chris Middleton on a three-year, $100 million deal with a player option. I thought that was really good value for the Bucs. Um, he wasn't the same guy last year, but he was pretty good in the playoffs, 24-6-6 six, and six on good mm-hmm. shooting. His pick-and-roll numbers in the playoffs, like I wrote about how the volume of, of his pick-and-rolls went down and how that had become their signature play when they won the championship, Middleton, Giannis, pick-and-rolls, and, rolls, and how, how we had seen less of those. I looked it up today. The efficiency of them when they did it was like off the charts awesome in the postseason, which is a great sign. Um, they brought back Brooke Lopez. Uh, definitely the Rockets thought they had it. It didn't have it. And Brooke Lopez on a two-year deal is totally fine. Um, Malik Beasley necessary. at the minimum. Not, not, that's just fine. I mean, I, yeah, the money is fine, but having him is necessary because they had – how were they going to replace him? You, this If you have Giannis with two plus one left on his contract, eligible for an extension in September, you can't take a step back. You have no means to replace these guys. Like They were kind of trapped into bringing these two guys back. And I think given that they were trapped like that, they got them on deals that are not long and not damaging in any possible way. Beasley at the minimum is awesome. Jay Crowder comes back after doing nothing for them last year. And they poked around on John Collins a little bit and a couple other things that made me think they're a little bit open-minded in terms of they understand that they're running this team back. But the, the question is, eventually you need to find a roadmap to the next team. You need to show Giannis in 2028, here's what our team could look like. And I don't necessarily, they, they haven't done that. And I don't know how they can do, they just don't have the tools to do that. They don't have a first round pick to trade until 2029. Um, but I, I do think they're keenly aware of that. Drew Holiday actually becomes extension eligible in the season, next season too. That will be interesting. But, you know, it's funny to think about them, KP, because Philly's embroiled in drama, as we're going to talk about later. The Celtics rechanged their team, reshaped their team with the smart Porzingis deal. They're still there. Um, I had Milwaukee winning the title all season last season. Obviously, that went poo-poo. Um, they've already won it. It's a weird thing because they've already won a title. So they've done the thing where they've proven it under the most pressure in the biggest stage. Game sevens against Brooklyn. Game six against Phoenix. Giannis makes all his free throws. And yet, every time they lose in the playoffs, including this most recent loss to Miami, other than the year Middleton was hurt in 2022 and they took Boston to seven, which I thought was a really good showing by them and gave me a ton of faith in them going into last year. But they've had so many playoff exits that leave you shaking your head like, is there something wrong with this team? Like, how can they lose these games in this manner? And yes, Giannis was hurt in game one and they didn't play games two and three and was clearly not 100%. But, like, Drew Holiday's scoring and efficiency has dropped off badly three playoffs in a row. Obviously, defensively, we know what he is, one of the very, very, very best. It's just, I don't remember a team that had won it. I don't remember a core that had won a title in recent vintage and also left me worried, like, are they going to choke in the playoffs if, like, one thing goes wrong for them? I don't, I don't quite know how to feel about them anymore. It's the same team. And, and I don't – it's the same team I was optimistic about all season. Chris Middleton should be healthier going into the season than he was last year and get off to a better start and be, be really healthy for the playoffs if things go right. I don't know. I just don't know what to think. What do you think? Short-term yeah, and long-term. It's a good point because we've seen in, pa- in the recent past a lot of teams who are like, 
okay, who cares what you do in the regular season? You got to prove us to prove it to us in the playoffs. Like, you know, Toronto was like that for a long period of time. Lebronto. Lebronto. Yeah. And, but that was because of the fact that they hadn't won the title and then they won the title and no one had any doubts about their, their toughness when they brought back that same core minus Kawhi the next year, you know, you had doubts about their high end ability, but not, you know, can they do it in the playoffs that, that, you know, phrase that sort of way. So yeah, for a former G, I, I mean, I'm trying to think, I don't know if there's been one in NBA history where that kind of question mark is applied. So it, it is a fascinating year, especially when you like they're, they have continuity in terms of the roster, at least at this point, but they are going to have a new head coach. And how different is that going to look? And again, can we judge anything that Adrian Griffin does until we get to the playoffs? And look, Milwaukee fans can ask us to bury our heads in the sand about Giannis and his extension. He's always said he wanted to stay in Milwaukee. I get it. Bill Simmons had a whole monologue on his podcast this week about how Mark Lassery selling his stake in the team was a red flag for him that there's some fear there that Giannis might leave. Otherwise, why would you sell the team? Even though the valuation was like so high that Mark Lassery made a killing out of well, selling his. But the valuation was so high in part because Giannis plays for the team, right? Exactly. And I'm not, I'm sure Milwaukee fans thought, well, that's just Bill being alarmist. He's a Celtics fan. He's trying to destabilize the Bucks. Like that's how fans think about these things. If you don't think there are people within Milwaukee's brain trust that are scared Giannis is going to leave at some point in the middle of his career. You are wrong. Um, that is a fear that exists, not in all corners of the Bucks brain trust and organization because he has been so loyal, because they have one with him. They, they did right by him with the Drew Holiday trade. But almost every team, other than probably Denver, operates with an umbrella of fear that if things go badly, this dude could leave and we're screwed. And, you know, look, I, I out like they're they're getting older around him. And I don't know what young talent in the pipeline is going to hit. Maybe Marshawn Beauchamp makes a leap this year. They just put A.J. Green onto a standard contract. He can really shoot it. They're clearly looking around, I think, for ways to get more athletic. The kid, they dry, Andre Jackson from UConn, is, is an example of that. So maybe they'll hit some of those. But, you know, the roadmap is is a little murky and that's just what happens to championship teams. You, you have to kind of get older to win championships and trade your picks to win championships. And so the roadmap is a little murky. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it would be malpractice for them not to be worrying about the possibility of Giannis leaving. Now you don't want to do that to the point where you suddenly become so short-sighted in your moves that you actually cause him to leave because of the fact that he looks around and says, how can we possibly win this going forward? Andre Jackson Jr. generated a surprising number of takes here uh, talking to people. Uh, he, I, I loved watching him play at UConn. It, it was absolutely the kind of guy I want on my team in terms of the winning plays. The, the shooting has remained a struggle so far during summer league and maybe hasn't been able to do as much with the ball in his hands as I kind of expected based on what we saw at UConn where you know early in the season he was their de facto point guard. We'll see. Bucks. I mean, if I picked the Bucks to win the title last year and Giannis got hurt in the playoffs, I should still pick them to win the title this year. But a lot of things have changed, including Denver ascending, Phoenix remaking its team. You know, the L.A. teams and the Warriors aren't going away. Boston remade its team. And you did the manner of those losses. It, it's just disturbing. And it, it makes you think, like, is there just something off kilter when things get tight? All right, let's switch to uh, Dame. The Dame Harden landscape of unhappy guards, the nexus of unhappiness. 
Um, Joe Cronin yesterday spoke at Summer League uh, while I was on a three-hour layover in Salt Lake City uh, about this could, if it takes months, it takes months. I hope that's how he said it, but I don't think he said it that way. Um, <laughs> that this could take a while. That it would be very helpful if Damian Lillard opened his wish list beyond a singular team, the Miami Heat. Um, and that this could take a while. And the buzz going around Vegas is they are not entirely bluffing when they say, if he's on our team in training camp, he's on our team in training camp. We're okay with that. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but that's certainly what they're signaling. And, and clearly there's been no progress at all, so to speak, of with the deal with the Heat. Um and so just here we are. I don't want to debate who's right, who's wrong. I think everybody's right, and I, I did this last week. I don't want to debate the available packages and fake trades. I've already done that. Um, what it, it, What's interesting to you about this? And I know you had – I asked you, is there a Dame take or a Dame opinion you you have that you don't feel like has been aired or you haven't said? So I guess start there. You asked me if there was a Dame team, I think, you know, a, a, well, a wildcard Dame team. And I re- responded with that because so one of the things that often comes up in this conversation is, number one, all these teams can make better offers than Miami. And yeah, that's great. They have to make the offer. A lot of people can do things. The making the offer is what the what actually counts in this one. And the reason if I were a team that were not, you know, I can't say on Dame's list because Dame's list is one team, but a team that we feel like Damian Lillard would be amenable about getting traded to and a team that's capable of contending for a championship right now, my fear would be, okay, let's say I trade for him and we're competitive, but we're not a championship contender. Two years passes. Damian Lillard, in a place he did not want to come on a team that is not yet contending for a championship, says, I want out of here. And now all of a sudden you're trying to trade him, I believe, you know, two years would be 35 right at that point. On an expiring $60 million deal or entering the last season of a... He'd have two years left, right? Oh, two years, okay. Yeah, yeah, just be entering that option, which we have it on the books, or that extension, I should say, which we have on the books at a certain number, but it can still go up with the cap. Like one of the things, like a lot of the contracts you see signed now, the argument for them is, yeah, today it might be this percentage of the cap, but the cap's going up. It's going to be less in a couple of years. So that applies to like the Struis and Stewart contracts we were talking about. Because of that damn extension, he won't necessarily get pumped up all the way to the 40% max in or the 35% max in the next cap, but he can certainly get very close to it. So the rising cap actually increases Dame's extension. And he probably won't still have been a top 10 player the previous year as he is right now. So I think you're going to have you're going to be trading him at a loss if you have to retrade him in two years. So if that possibility exists, you have to be good enough to win a championship right now for that to make any sense whatsoever as a move. And, uh, you know, look, I know the list is one team, but. Teams sometimes have to – if you really want Damian Lillard, if you're that team and you really want Damian Lillard, like I would use Boston as the best example. And I'm not saying they want Damian Lillard. Everyone knows that they have a, a, a fake trade package, Malcolm Brogdon, Robert Williams, three picks, three swaps, whatever, that can compete at the very least with what Miami's best offer is, if not exceed it. Probably exceed it, but, you know, six of one, half dozen the other. Not Jalen Brown. I keep saying this. I, I, that, I just don't think that trade makes a ton of sense – 
for either team. I think it makes actually a little bit more sense for Boston, this theoretical Jalen Brown, Damian Lillard swap, than it does for Portland. But I, I just I don't see that happening. Jalen Brown I, is going to get the Supermax. I, as I said last week, I think they're haggling over the fringe stuff, you know, trade kickers, things like that. Um, but if you're a team like that, any team, pick a team, I don't care. Like, you're going to get a chance to meet with Damian Lillard. That's going to be part of the process. The Blazers should let you meet with Damian Lillard and his agent and, like, try to sell him. Like, if you're a good team and you have confidence in your infrastructure and you think you can actually take a shot at it for multiple years, not one year. This isn't Kawhi who's an expiring and you got to win the title that year and he walks, he walks. Try to sell yourself. Bet on yourself as a team. Bet on yourself can apply to teams, too. Um you know that that'll be interesting. I, you know, the Miami offer. What's your take on the like the theoretical best Miami offer? I have described it as palatable, which I think is better. Which I by which I mean it's better than it has been made out to be. And to be clear, the the theoretical best Miami offer, which who knows if it's on the table. They if you're the only team on the list, you don't got to put your best offer on the table. But it's hero. Pick a pick another high salary from their high salaries. I amend the Thunder pick that I owe so I can throw, throw in three, three firsts, unprotected, 24, 28, 30, I think, or something like that, whatever they are. Jovic, Haquez, so my two most recent first-round picks. Like, that's, that's a lot of stuff, and those Heat picks far out. I know everyone assumes the Heat will be amazing as long as Riley's there. They've had down years before. The problem is, if you don't like Hero, and it doesn't appear that you really love Hero— so you flip him in, you flip him into another pick. So now I can spin it to my fans like, hey, I got like six first round picks. If they want, I keep getting stuck on if they want a player, who's the player? And if it, it, like Hero would be the player, like the young building block player, and they're already well stocked with guards, so maybe they don't want another guard. Who's the player? And that's where like I haven't really been able to answer that question of like who's the player, who's the Mikhail Bridges of this trade for them. I don't. Like, Maxi is an answer that has been used by lots of people. We can talk about the three-team, you know, trade where all of this gets wrapped up together with the Clippers, the Sixers, and the Blazers. I think there are workable versions of that for sure where Harden goes to the Clippers, Dame goes to the Sixers, a whole boatload of stuff, including Tyrese Maxi goes to um, Portland and maybe like a Norm Powell or something comes to Philadelphia. I don't know, something like that. Um I think there's workable versions of that, but like I haven't like, but Maxi's a small guard too, and he's better than the small guards Portland's got. Maybe Scoot looks like he's going to be a stud. I haven't found the player. You know what I mean? Like the the guy that I'm going to be is going to be my Mikhail Bridges. I do wonder to what degree the excitement about Maxi relative to Tyler Hero, and I think the one big difference is Maxi. I think is capable of playing point guard, and Hero isn't. And that, I think, makes it a lot more palatable to be a, a small guard, although Hero is b- bigger than Maxi. Uh, I wonder how much of the relative excitement is the fact that Maxi is still in the last year of his rookie deal and, and his salary could be anything next year, even though we know it's probably going to be a really large salary, whereas Hero already is locked into that salary and we're thinking of it at that number. And contracts change the way that we think about players, not just about the contract, but about the player themselves, probably more so than they should. Who that guy is, I don't know that I see it. I mean, I think if if I were running Portland, I I the Miguel Bridges is not out there. That deal is not happening because of the fact that Damian Lillard is not Kevin Durant. 
I don't know if I would be as concerned of that because I already have the guy that is my North, the guys that are my North stars and Scoot Henderson and Shaden Sharp. I think that's what gives them the ability to make a deal that is heavy on picks and light on current talent in return, especially because if you're, if those are your two guys and they're, you know, 19 and 20 or, or whatever Scoot and Shaden are, we shouldn't be trying to win right now. We should be accepting that there's going to be another year or two of hopefully will be fun. will be very exciting. Uh, look, I'm saying this is someone, you know, a lot of people don't have anything invested in the Portland Trailblazers future. That's where I go watch games. I do have something invested and I feel I would feel a lot more comfortable going to games next year without Damian Lillard there, knowing that Scoot and Shaden are going to be really fun to watch, even if it isn't necessarily translating to wins. Yeah, I think Hero has become underrated because the Heat made the finals without him, because mm-hmm. he is a defensive liability. I think I think like, he's a very most good teams aren't trying to make the finals. Like we spend all this time talking about well, does that have to win at the highest rounds of the playoffs? Like only a few teams get there. That's the point. That's why they're the high rounds of the playoffs. Yeah, I, I think he's become underrated as uh, he's a very good offensive player who can do a lot of things offensively, and he's an elite catch and shoot three point shooter. I mean, over forty percent every year, sometimes by a lot. And actually, I've, I've said this before, like, I, I like it better when he reorients his game towards being a little bit more Clay Thompson and a little bit less I want to be point guard Tyler Hero. But the fact that he can do all of those things at a decent level, I think he's a really interesting offensive player. Like, I comped him when I wrote, I wrote a piece about Tyler about a year ago, and I comped his upside to, I think he could be like a C.J. McCollum type of scorer who's, who's never an all-star but is a really good player and can be the third best player on a great team if you have the right pieces around him. And I think that's like a good player. And maybe that strikes people as like wildly optimistic. But if you look at the numbers, it's not. Like he's already a 20-point score. He's a good passer. He's a good shooter from mid-range and from three. Okay. Um, I, I don't I, – now, now there's suspense. Like my assumption all along was this will be a long, drawn-out process – and I'm sorry, Dame, but that's the trade-off you made when you signed an extension with Portland is this does not get to unfold on your timetable. But but, but, my assumption, and I guess if you ask me to bet now, would still be that it just takes a while and Portland extracts enough out of Miami that everyone can be happy. And the Heat will certainly fight to keep Hawkes, who's a win-now player, and fight, fight to keep a swap or a pick. Like, that stuff matters. My assumption has been that that's where we'll end up. But every day that goes by, every week that goes by, like, who knows, right? But I don't know. What do you, what, do you, would, if you were a betting man, would you still bet on the Heat? I would, for the reasons I laid out at the start of this. And I would say, I don't think that they're bluffing. Like, certainly, everything that Joe Cronin said yesterday is what you're hearing from everyone behind the scenes, that there's no traction with other teams, that, you know, that this could take months, that they're happy to wait this out, and they don't feel comfortable making the Miami offer, at the very least, as it is right now. I will say, it's one thing to say that on July 11th, and it's another thing to say that on September 11th, when training camp is two weeks away, and you're staring at the prospect of actually doing it, and also the, the like the actual challenges of making the trade become greater in season. You can't take back, you know, so many guys that it pushes you over the roster limit. Like you have to start cutting guys. If you make this trade, you know, after the season starts, you can do it in training camp. Still those, those challenges are why the Donovan Mitchell trade got done when it did. Uh, so I think you can, it's, it's easier to take that position, even if it's a legitimate position now than it will be when training camp is staring and you, you in wonder the face. if the Lillard thing is holding up the Harden thing 
if or mm-hmm. if there's a point where the Sixers and the Clippers engage or re-engage, if they've really even, I think they've engaged, but I don't think it's gotten so serious. If they say, okay, this thing is just going to take too long. Let's do our own separate thing. If there's even a palatable deal with the Clippers that the Sixers would do, I think there probably is, but I don't know that that deal is palatable to the Clippers. Um, and then the other name is, is uh, Mark Stein and Michael Grange. Michael Grange, uh, who covers the Raptors for Sportsnet, wrote a bang-on piece about this that I co-signed everything in it, is Pascal Siakam. And you wonder, there's just so much Pascal Siakam noise right now. And I don't quite know what to make of it because Toronto is a tough organization to read. Um, They obviously kind of went forward and backward at the same time over the trade deadline and now the offseason with Van Vliet going, but Pirtle coming and pick out the door and Pirtle re-signing. I said as soon as Van Vliet left, I said this weeks ago before he left that Siakam is the guy to keep an eye on that if there's another shoe to drop it's him and the noise just hasn't really abated Michael Grange wrote yesterday about how he hasn't showed up at summer league and and maybe there's something to read into that again I would read that column and and I think he was bang on um Atlanta is the team mentioned most often Indiana has been mentioned with them I I don't well we can talk about that I I don't it's hard to make this fake trade work and someone even said to me like could if the dame thing if miami can't get dame would they end up going after siakam with a similar package that's a weird fit to me butler siakam out of bio but talent is talent um i don't know what's going to happen but this seems to be a so much smoke there's got to be fire situation here um start with atlanta and indiana what do you think of his potential fit Let's start with the Hawks. What do you think about his potential fit with the Hawks, and what the deal and what the deal would look like? Like who's going out because that determines some of the fit too, right? Like who's left over? Exactly, because one of the players who's definitely not going out is Dejounte Murray. Now that he signed this extension, which was awesome for the Hawks that that they got that done. But that that like that flip made sense to me to some degree in terms of Toronto gets the ball handler that they need without Fred Van Fleet. Obviously, they signed Dennis Schroeder as a replacement, but. You know, that's you mentioned going forwards and backwards. Unfortunately, that's a that's a way bigger backwards for Toronto, which is why I think they have to start considering deals for their guys who can be free agents next summer. I mean, they, they should have started it a long time ago, but now they really have to. Uh, in terms of matching salary, you could get there with either DeAndre Hunter or Clint Capella, and then you would you would have to have Sadiq Bey in there basically because of his salary. And then you could just put together the guys that Atlanta has on minimum contracts, some of which are still non-guaranteed. If you guarantee those, that would be enough salary to get you there. Uh, I don't know what that does for Toronto exactly. Like Capella makes no sense after they've just re-signed Pirtle. Hunter could be a fit there. You could certainly play him with their other their fleet of other forwards, but it seems like there's going to have to be more value than than just Hunter and Bay, who again do things that a lot of their guys already do. Yeah, Hunter has got to be in any iteration of this deal. Uh, just his $20 million salary is necessary. I think he's a piece that Atlanta facing a money crunch going forward would not like be totally adverse to getting off that contract. Although I think he's a good player. He just hasn't been healthy enough and his shooting has gone wildly up and down defensively. He hasn't quite been what he was cracked up to be, but he's young. I, th- I think he'll be a good defensive player. He's got to be in the deal. Bogdan Bogdanovich becomes trade eligible, but not till September. That's an almost exact salary match with Siakam, those two guys together. 
But again, if I'm Toronto, I'm like, well, what else are you throwing me? And Atlanta has a Kings pick next season. They can only trade their 2029 pick, and they can put in a 2028 swap uh, as well. Is that is that enough? And then you get to like the they probably they would I, you just this is just I'm, this is not reporting. This is me gaming this out to be clear to listeners. Like I'm not reporting any of this. I have not had these conversations with the Hawks. But if I'm them, I want Capella in the deal because I'm ready to promote a Kongu to the starting five and Capella's money is troubling to me for the same reasons as Hunter's. And if I'm Toronto, I don't want Capella. I want a Kongu. That's the guy that I want because Hunter is no longer like a crown jewel of a trade kind of player at this point in his career. He's more of a question mark. A Kongu is that guy for me, even though I have Pirtle, I'll figure that out later. And Atlanta's like, we're not giving you a Kongu. And the whole thing just kind of starts to fritter away. Similar with Indiana, which they have all their picks. They have a, an exact salary match with um, with Buddy Heald, Daniel Tyson, TJ McConnell. But I, the Raptors are going to be like, well, we want Matherin or Jairus Walker, who you just drafted. And the Pacers are going to be like, no, we don't want to give those guys up. Or That's why we're giving you the picks. And I, I, that one kind of falls through to me, too. And if he doesn't want to be in Indiana, he's an expiring contract. Like, that's, that's also a part of it. I don't know that he does or doesn't, but... I just keep hearing Atlanta, 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 which makes me think maybe he's not amenable to being in Indiana. Yeah, and one of the things about uh, Jairus Walker has been one of the highlights of Summer League for me. He didn't shoot the ball particularly well in his first game, but you know I watched him a fair bit at Houston, and I never saw him flying around on defense like he has been in these two games. It's been incredible, like perfectly timed block shots from the weak side, just picking guys clean off the dribble. Like I maybe Kelvin Sampson's system, which worked incredibly well for Houston, to be clear, was maybe the best team in the country over the course of last season going into the tournament. And maybe he was holding Jarris Walker back defensively. He's like, no, he blocked a lot of shots. And that was intriguing in combination with his mobility and his playmaking, which has also shown up and maybe even been better than advertised this far. But oh boy, he has looked incredible. I would I, I would go forward with Jarris Walker right now and not worry about Pascal Siakam if I were the Pacers. I don't think I don't think the Pacers interest level is quite where it has been reported to be. Let's put it that way. Um, do you have a wild card Pascal Siakam team before you go to Las Vegas International Airport and play the slots? Or McCarran. <laughs> it's McCarran, I think. Play the slots. McCarran, yes. I've never played the slots while waiting, but maybe if my flight got to, got delayed that badly, knock on wood that it was. That's won't. a dangerous uh, flight delay. That's a bottom five flight delay place to have your flight delayed because of the possibility you could just end up losing $500 because you're bored. And then you're really just doubly pissed off about the delay. Wild card Pascal Siakam team. Chicago. I mean, it would basically have to be list. built around Zach Levine, I assume. Uh, and it might not be good news for your guy, Patrick Williams, if they added another... I'm just giving you bad news on this pod. I don't, that, that don't, this probably isn't actually going to happen. I mean, maybe if you're if you're Toronto, you talk yourself into Levine gives us the shot creation we lost with Van Vliet. He's a bigger guy. He can fit a little bit more. You know, we have like enough good defenders that we can hide him a little bit at that end. That that's a construction I could see making sense. And then Chicago, you get bigger. Uh, you know, I, you. I, the fact that it's a guy under contract for several years for an expiring is a concern, but also might might not be the worst thing in the world if you're Chicago. So what do you think of that? I, I, I have floated on this podcast before when I was do, we were doing fake Zach Levine trades. There's something I like about the Scotty Barnes-Zach Levine fit, like the shooting around him, the secondary shot creation. I think that fit works. 
I, I think finding the right deal valuation that both teams would agree with is, is difficult, but I've floated that before. I'll just rapid fire because I know you got to go. Dallas doesn't have enough stuff. Phoenix doesn't have any stuff. Um, the Philadelphia has like the Tobias Harris plus a pick package, but they're embroiled in so much other stuff that I don't really see it. Yep. Um, the Cameroonian connection would be kind of fun, though. Um, the most fun team, it, this is just too crazy, but it would – it would kind of be fun if Oklahoma City was like it. Lugans Dort, Davis Bertan salary, a whole bunch of picks. We have so many picks we can't possibly use them. And let's see what we can do with this team. They just don't rush things like that. I mean, the Paul George trade was kind of an anomaly that fell into their lap a little bit. But like Shea Gilgis Alexander is ready to win today. That team almost made the playoffs. I know they're super young and they're getting Holmgren back and they want to see what that looks like. But, you know, they played very, very small last year, like with, without a true four sometimes. They're sliding Dort to the four, Jalen Williams to the four. I think he would be a fun fit there, but, I, I you know, eh. The other one is um, – go ahead. you have thoughts on my crazy well, just, idea? Can I, I, I'm intrigued by it. Can I give you the super cap dork note on this, which is that people might say, well, they can't retrade Bertans. They just got him with other players because they just got him. Oh, yeah. But because of the fact that he was acquired in cap using cap space – not with a trade exception, they can aggregate his salary. And Dort is Canadian. He he is. That is true. Call this one in. The other one. <laughs> this is bizarre. Julius Randle made All NBA last year, and Pascal Siakam didn't. But I bet every Knicks fan would be happy. A lot of Knicks fans would be happy about a Randle. Plus, and uh, Toronto would be the team asking for other stuff. That's the thing. And the Knicks would say, wait a second. Our guy was all NBA last year. They're almost the exact same age. Why should we Makes give you any money. other stuff? Makes less money. Um, but his playoff performances have been concerning uh, for multiple seasons now. Julius Randles. Um, I just, the teams would haggle too much. But I, I, I kind of like an idea built around that construction. Um, I know RJ Barrett is also on their team and is Canadian. I don't think that really makes a ton of sense. Um, Those are my wildcard teams. All right, go go play the slots, Kevin. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to try my luck this time. Kevin Pelton, the Pelton cast. He's. I didn't even realize you had already graded the Isaiah Stewart extension. So Beef Stew's deal is up. You've graded every goddamn move of the offseason. Go have a beer, win some money, save travels back to Seattle. and who knows, maybe in five or six years or four years or eight years or ten years, we'll be talking about the Seattle TBDs. Um, I'm hoping closer to the four. NBA. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, KP. Thanks for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.